If you would, take your Bibles together with me this morning. Let's turn again to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning the reading this morning in verse 26, you would follow along as I read from God's Word. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Shall we pray together this morning? Lord God, Almighty, you are God, and we are not. You are God, the Creator. You are God, the Maker of man. You are God, the Savior of man. But you are also God, the Judge of man. Today, Lord, Allow us, all who are here and hearing, to understand you completely, with no minced words, with no soft-peddling your truth, with no cowardice toward facing the reality of your words, but let us learn what you have said and take it to heart. We pray your help from pulpit to pew and your blessing. We pray against the necessary cursing for those who refuse to hear. But we pray thy will be done. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. We've been looking at chapter 10, the accomplishments of the new covenant. The glorious accomplishments of the new covenant laid out so wonderfully for us in the first portion of this chapter. How amazing it is that this is a new covenant, better than the covenant of Moses that came before, complete in its ability armored, if you will, by the blood of Jesus Christ, which empowers the new covenant and brings it into force, promising eternal forgiveness through Jesus Christ, opening a pathway to draw near unto God, very God, with Jesus Christ, the great high priest, ushering believers in, allowing then the believers themselves to accomplish in their lives a drawing near to that God, a holding fast to the truth of their confession and the promise of the new covenant, even a work in one another's lives, considering one another to stir up love and good works and to assembling ourselves together as we see the day of God approaching. It is from that springboard of verse 25 that verse 26 hits us like a freight train rolling down the tracks that we didn't hear coming. 
Verse 25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. What day is that? The day of the judgment of God. The day of the return of Jesus Christ, the Savior, but the judge of those who refuse his salvation. Therefore, the next sentence is this. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is written to us. As it was written to the Hebrews, it is applicable to us in our day. There was a day prior to ours, similar to ours. In our day, we await the second coming of Jesus Christ, foretold and promised in the Scriptures, the new covenant fulfillment. In Luke chapter 19, there was another generation, a generation that awaited the first coming of Jesus Christ, and it went something like this. Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, he being Jesus. And it came to pass when he came near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, and he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, Whereas you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing him? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of him. So those who were sent departed and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as they went, they spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because, because you did not know the time of your visitation because you did not know the time of your visitation. The first coming of Christ as Savior, the promised Messiah of Israel, the anointed one of God who would deliver, had come. The promises of the prophets, the promises to Moses were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ, but the crowds, but the people had stopped believing 
the promise. And so when he arrived, they rebelled. They rejected him. For just after the triumphal entry, Jesus is arrested. He is taken before Pontius Pilate. He is accused by the Sanhedrin. The crowd is made an offer. Would you have this man, Jesus, or would you have Barabbas? The crowd said we would have Barabbas. And then they cried out about Jesus, crucify him. They did not know the hour of their visitation. This sermon is to prevent all who hear it from missing and rejecting the return of Jesus Christ the second time through unbelief, through the forgetting or the casting aside of the promises. Some of us decry and even cry out to God the existence that we have had for over 2,000 years as a church, waiting, waiting for Jesus to return. Where is he, the scoffer might say. And even in the nigglings of our own heart, we might say, how long can this go on? Why is it generation after generation? Is he coming? Are we alone? I say to you, we are not alone. He is coming. And we have a singular purpose. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised, verse 23, is faithful. We've looked at the good accomplishments of the new covenant. Now there's another good accomplishment, but for some it will be grievous, terrifying, and destructive. For the new covenant accomplishes complete salvation and blesses those who trust in his promises. The giving of clear access into the holy sanctuary of God through Christ, the great high priest. The forgiveness of our sins in toto. On the other hand, the new covenant accomplishes complete destruction on those who have heard, have heard the new covenant gospel message and have rejected the promises it contains and the Son of God who ratified that covenant in his blood. If there were seat belts in the pew, I would say, buckle up. I say that not jokingly, I say it seriously. These are texts which must needs be taught lest a generation miss the promises of God and groan with despair when he appears in their unbelief. So now we turn to what God will accomplish upon the rejectors of the new covenant promise. What God will accomplish upon rejectors of the new covenant. We look in the first place, the consequences for the willful sinner. The consequences for the willful sinner, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, for if we sin willfully after we've received knowledge of truth, what is this? Well, I've identified three questions associated with this term, this title, the willful sinner. They are simple. First, who are the willful sinners? Who are they? 
This brings us into the study of what is called theologically the study of apostasy or of an apostate. What is an apostate and what is apostasy? These are terms that are rarely used in churches anymore, and sadly so. Sadly so, for you need to know if you are one or not. I certainly wanted to know. What is an apostate? And what is it to commit apostasy? It is directly associated with being a willful sinner. It means this by definition. Apostasy is an intentional, let me underscore that, an intentional turning away. Further, it is a defection or abandoning of known truth. Turning away from or abandoning known truth. Let me put it another way. It's having received and understood the truth, yet they fail to embrace it with full belief and therefore turn away from that truth and sin willfully against that truth which they know. So you can't not know the gospel and be an apostate. You must know the gospel. You must know that it's even the truth, and you turn away from it. That is the identification of these willful sinners. And even the term in the Greek, willful, it is very interesting. In verse 26, willful is the first word in the Greek text. And when that happens... It means that this is the word of emphasis. That God is emphasizing an act of the will of man in turning from the truth of God and transgressing, sinning against what he knows is true. This is something, as say again, done intentionally after they have received the knowledge of the truth. We don't want to be in company with the we of verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of truth, then it gets bad. The second question I have is, is after we ask the question, who are the willful sinners? Secondly, I want to know who are not willful sinners. So if there's a group that is the willful sinners, which group is not a willful sinner? That seemed important to me. Amen? So this is not the believer who has a lapse into sin. What's a lapse? A mistake. You sin. You know what? If that was a willful sinner, guess what we all are in danger of? We're doomed. We're done. And that cannot be what it means, even judging by the text of the entirety of Hebrews that we've already read and not being willing to go back and give you a complete synopsis. I just proclaim it. These are more than just sinners who are intentional, but they are intentional by way of a pattern. By way of a pattern. The willful sinner... The sinner is in the present participle of sin. That means an ongoing pattern of sin and rejection of the truth. So it's not just a believer who laps into one sin. And it is not the doubt of a believer we all worry about our doubts, don't we? We all worry about doubts, and we all have them as real Christians. If you're a real Christian and a human, you have doubted. Not just Thomas in the Bible, all of us. There are times when we wish we could have seen the hands of Christ. When we could have put our hand and fell to the scar on his side as confirmation that our faith is rightly placed in a tangible God. But yet Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. 
And we are among those, yet we have doubts time to time and are in need of assurance. And that is exactly why the book of Hebrews has been written. And we're going to get to chapter 11 that will pump you up. But not today. Today we buckle up and put on our fire gear for the heat of God is coming. Even the doubter may say with Paul, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him. How long? Until that day. What day is that? The day of his visitation. We are waiting. Those are not willful sinners, though they may doubt and they may lapse. They don't carry the pattern of rejection. Thirdly, my third question is, what happens to willful sinners? We ask the text. The text proclaims what will happen to willful sinners. Lowercase letter A in your notes, this truth. What will happen to willful sinners? Well, Christ's sacrifice for their sins is removed. Let's read our text again. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. No longer a sacrifice for sins. There are no more frightening words in the entirety of the scripture than these. That the very sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Paschal Lamb, he who bled and offered himself before God, very God, and as our high priest came into the holy place carrying his own blood of the new covenant, which when we take the Lord's table, we repeat the words of Paul, this is the new covenant in my blood. When that has been rejected, brothers and sisters, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin available because Jesus is the only sacrifice available to cover sin. So if you willfully sin against that, there is no longer any way to cover that sin. There is no sacrifice available for the defiant, willful sinner. And by the way, that was true even under the law of Moses. Under the law of Moses, there was no sacrifice in all of the sacrificial system dedicated to covering the sin of someone who was blatantly and willfully defying God's law as a pattern. I give you as an example, Numbers chapter 15 in the law of Moses, verse 30 where the word says, but the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native-born or a stranger, that means whether Jew or Gentile, whether Hebrew or Greek, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall, listen, be cut off from among his people, because, here it is, he has despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. There is no sacrifice available for him. He is cut out, cast off, awaiting his final demise. You see, if you reject Jesus Christ, if you reject his blood, if you reject the good news that Jesus died on your behalf and stood before the Father and paid the price for your sin, and then you go out and willfully sin against God's pattern, you can't be saved. I didn't say this. I am proclaiming this because God wrote this. These are his words. Without Jesus, I ask you, who will die for your sins then? If you reject Jesus, who is available to die for your sins? Only you. 
We remember how glorious we were taught in this very chapter the work of Jesus was. Hebrews 10 verse 4, reminding them that the Hebrew sacrifices under the Mosaic system were not sufficient. Listen, Hebrews 10 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, now pay attention again, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. To God, he says, these sacrifices that the Hebrews have been doing for centuries, these are not what you finally desired. What was it that God desired as a sufficient sacrifice to cover sin? It is this. Jesus declares, but a body you have prepared for me. The fleshly coming of Jesus Christ as a man necessitated by God because that's the body of the sacrifice which God desired to cover the sin of man. A man must die for a man. And the man, Jesus Christ, died for sins. A body you have prepared for me, he says to Father God, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, verse 6, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, which means pay attention, I have come in the volume of this book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And the willful sinner rejects that. It is synonymous with the sin leading to death. Everyone who has ever read the book of 1 John gets to chapter 5 and verses 16 and 17 and everyone comes away wanting to know what is the sin that leads to death. We have been discussing it and here it is, the text of 1 John 5.16. If anyone sees his brother sinning, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death. And let me just say this right now, Christian. You will see a brother sinning a sin. And by the way, your brother will probably see you sinning a sin. Can I have a testimony? You have been redeemed, but not completely yet. Your sanctification is not yet done. You sin, and at some point, you're going to get caught. And that's a good thing. Here's instruction. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. You know what that means? That when you see your brother and sister sinning, you're not supposed to just jump on them and say, you're going to hell. Repent. You're supposed to pray for them and then say, repent. I love you. Let me help you. I'm just like you. But there's another kind of sin, not the lapse, not the doubt, not the even straying for a momentary period of time, but it's this. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. This is even a prohibition for praying for those who are willfully sinning against the gospel of God. Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death, but there is a sin leading to death, and it is the one being described right here in Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. For I say again, because if you reject Jesus Christ, there is no other way of salvation. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How many come apart from him? No one comes to the Father apart from me. What happens to will for sinners? The sacrifice of Jesus for their sins is removed. There is no other sacrifice for their sin. There being only one. Secondly, lowercase b, Christ's sacrifice is replaced then with fearful dread. With fearful dread. Dread. First, a dread of impending divine judgment. Look at verse 27. Verse 26 ended, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. 
when you reject the gospel, when you go away and sin willfully as a pattern of life, this now becomes dread. An assurance, a certainty. The word in the Greek means dreadful. It means terrifying. And by the way, it was used three times in Hebrews. It is used here in verse 27. It is then used again in verse 31. Look, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then it's used in chapter 12 and verse 21 in the final warning passages where it says, And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. This is an Old Testament reference when they were by the mountain where the God, very God of Israel, was thundering. And the clouds were there and Moses was going up for the law. And I, 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 I want you to catch this. That every time fearful terror is used here, it is in accordance with being in the presence of God. In these three instances, this word for fearful, this terrifying dreadfulness, a deal with meeting God as a man. And so that is in the heart of every man that once he knows he's rejected this truth that a certain dreadfulness of the judgment of God is upon him because Hebrews 9.27 has said it is appointed for men to die once and after this, the judgment. Everyone knows this. Why does the church avoid this? That's the bad news that is the flip side of the coin for the good news. What else happens to these willful sinners? There's a second feature, a dread of the fiery indignation of God. Look at verse 27 again, chapter 10. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and, here we are, fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. You want to come to church and be comforted? Believe the gospel. You want to come to church and be scared out of your ever-loving mind? Don't. But if you're in a church that doesn't, when you don't believe the gospel, you're not in a church. You haven't heard the whole story. But I will not have your blood on my hands. And so we preach. A dread of the fiery indignation of God. Fiery in indignation could also be translated this way. A fierceness of fire. A fierceness of fire fueled by the indignation of God, his anger that is aroused by something mean or unjust or unworthy, hence willfully sinning against his promise and his son. What more unworthy act can any man on the face of the earth commit than rejecting the gospel message? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross in your place and thou shalt be saved. And when they say in their heart, I need not such a thing. I want no Christ such as this. I will live my life my way. I will make my way to God on my own merits. I don't care even if there is a God, another might say. Get out of my way. I will live my life. I will command my my way. I need not this. I've heard this before. I reject it. Well, then the indignation of God that burns like a flame will devour you as an adversary. That means as an enemy of God. See, every person who is born is born into the status of being an enemy of God. When you come into this world as a human, you're fallen, you're a sinner, and you are an enemy of God. The Bible proves this, namely Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verse 21, I give you a proof. Speaking to all 
And you who once were alienated, he says to the Colossians, listen, and enemies in your mind by wicked works. That is a pre-salvation condition for every human being. You're an enemy of God. And it's only through his reconciliation that you become a friend of God. And that's why Colossians goes on in good news. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you, listen, holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Then this, verse 23, if indeed... If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, are you waiting for the day of visitation in hope? Holding fast your confession. You know, the, the worst enemies are these. The worst enemies are those who say they are your friend. And then they give a sneak attack. Probably the most infamous one, the most ignoble one, came on December 7th, 1941. Where the Japanese delegation was in Washington, D.C., even shaking hands and making friends, and a fleet was steaming across the oceans to attack Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. After making friends, they became our enemies with a brutal attack. Willful sinners know the truth. They pretended to be a friend for a while, and then they turn and attack God. And that stirs up the wrathful indignation of God. If you think we were mad after Pearl Harbor, think of God. If you think we were mad at 2001 when September came, on September 11th, and they flew airplanes into our buildings, to civilian buildings, as an act of war, you ain't got nothing on God. Second Thessalonians says this. It says of the Lord who comes, who came in Christ to give you who are troubled rest with us. And that final rest is in reference in this way when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready for the visitation? And are we proclaiming that he will visit in just such a way? Or do we just say with so many of the serpy false Christian gospels out there, oh, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and all things in your life will be better and easy. That's a lie. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved, and then you will begin to be one of the enemies of the world and one of the enemies of those who have declared against Jesus Christ, even those who say they know the truth. And they will attack you sneakily. But their comeuppance in the world is coming. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. In verse 22, it's said to all believers, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of the faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, the confidence of entering in through the new covenant. But for rejecters of that very covenant, there is only fiery indignation of God. Letter B. The identification of the rejectors. 
from being called willful sinners. Now he turns to calling them rejectors. And he parallels it to the past time when every Hebrew would understand under the Mosaic law in verse 28. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? The identification of these rejectors is that they're in a worse condition than even those who rejected it under Moses. And it tells us then that there are decrees of punishment of God in hell. There are degrees of punishment according to what you have known and what you have done with what you have known. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel is a dangerous truth. It is a blessing when you know it unto salvation. It is a dangerous, destructive tool in the judgment hands of God when you reject that truth. In the days of Christ's first visitation, he himself, Jesus, mentions the punishment increased by those who had seen him among his own people, saw his miracles and rejected them. Listen, Matthew chapter 11, verse 22. Jesus said, but I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities, great seafaring people in the land of Israel. They should have been pushed out by Israel, but they never did. And they became great cities of wealth and evil based on their sea trade. And he goes on in verse 23 of Matthew 11, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Now zero in here. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, Capernaum. Why? Because Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, came to his own. He came unto Capernaum. He came to the Hebrews. He did the miracles. He preached the message of deliverance and the kingdom. He said, here is the kingdom. It is at hand. Repent. And showed them the truth of it with his miracles. And they rejected him out of hand. And Sodom and those people in it will receive a lesser punishment than Capernaum. Oh, ye who have heard the gospel of Jesus and have rejected it. You who know in your heart it is true and will not follow it. Willfully rejecting God. This is your status. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, our text says, they are condemned under the Mosaic system. Those who have rejected the law and walked that way. Deuteronomy chapter 17 reminds us, there is found among you within any of your gates which the Lord God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have not commanded, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates the man or the woman who has committed the wicked thing, and you shall, they shall be stoned to death, that man or woman with stones." Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death. Listen, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, he shall not be to put to death on the testimony of one witness. And that's where we get our juries, our jurisprudence even of the United States of America built off this. Verse 7, the hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. Now, wouldn't that make you really sure of your accusation? 
Not only if you're going to say he's guilty, but you also have to be the one who kills him. I think that would create a little higher level of honesty. But then as I look at our world today, I'm not so sure. So the comparison is here. If you reject the Mosaic Covenant, that was your lot, your judgment. Now, if you reject the truth of the new covenant of Jesus Christ, it is worse for you. This new covenant that gives a new heart, a heart of flesh, where we had no association with him, we now have forgiveness of sins under it. I must move on. Rejectors, secondly, they trample the Son of God un underfoot. Their identification is this is how they roll, if you will allow me that term. In the second portion here of verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? This is graphic language. Jesus himself used this about being the right kind of a follower, being one who is truly salt or light. And he says even to his own people when he's speaking, he says, if the salt loses its saltiness, what does he say it's good for? It's good for nothing. But to be thrown out the window and trampled underfoot by men, that's the same term. Those who teach Jesus Christ, as though he was spoiled salt, tossing him out the window to be tread beneath their feet as though he is worthless. Especially when they know the truth. This is the rejecting of the person of the Son of God. The title, Son of God, in this very book to all the Hebrews, the postulate has been made and sustained by the argument that Jesus Christ is now speaking. Once God and the prophet spoke to you, and now in Hebrews, the first chapter, he has spoken to you by his son, Jesus. And then he says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, today, you are my, my son. He is greater than the angels. And then he compares him to Moses, and though Moses was head over his house, Jesus is head over his house and is even higher and greater than Moses. And then in Hebrews, he speaks again of the Levites over the house of Aaron. And Jesus is the great high priest of the line of Melchizedek, greater and higher than they. And if you take all of these who are lesser than Jesus, and then take Jesus and throw him out the window. It's one thing if you throw out Abraham. It's one thing if you throw out Moses. It's one thing if you throw out Aaron. It's even a more grievous sin to trample the son of the living God under your feet as though he was nothing. You see, if you reject God's promises, you get the cursing. You accept God's promises, you get the blessings. You reject them, you get the cursings. The third characteristic identifying these rejectors is they despise the blood of the covenant. The text says they have trampled, trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. This is rejecting the work of the Son of God. In the first case, it's rejecting the person of the Son of God by trampling him underfoot. And now it's rejecting the work of the Son of God. It is treating the atoning blood of the covenant as though it is nothing more than something you might put in a water glass and throw drown the drain. Unnecessary. A common thing. How could that be done? Well, let me just tell you this. It's done every day. Our country is filled with people who know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many have heard it on the radio, heard it on the television, heard it in church, heard it from grandma or grandpa, heard it in school, heard it on the internet, heard it on a blog, 
and reject. The sinner who looks at himself and sees no need to be covered from his sin is in peril indeed. But the Christian who rejoices when he hears these words, like Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, verse 11 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, of the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Listen here, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Not part-time redemption, eternal redemption, once for all. And then highlighted again in verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He offered himself, and they treat it as though it is nothing. They say with the crowds in Jerusalem, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We have no need. And then they insult the spirit of grace. We just read of the spirit's Unity with Christ in verse 14 of chapter 9. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all rejected, including the empowering agent of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit. To reject the Holy Spirit is the sin unto death. It is that very thing that Jesus called out the unbelieving Pharisees and scribes who saw him do miracles, who saw him even cast out demons, who saw the power of his might and claimed that he was doing it by the powers of hell. It is Jesus who then pronounces a curse upon them, a judgment upon them. And he says, even in the book of Matthew, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. If God says he saves by the Spirit, and you say, no, he doesn't save by the Spirit. If God says his son died on your behalf, and you say, I don't care, it's not worth anything to me, I've heard that before, you're rejecting the rejuvenating work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a new covenant believer where their heart of stone, Ezekiel said, is replaced with a heart of flesh upon which the word of God is written. And now you should be in mortal terror. But the blasphemy against the Spirit, Jesus goes on to say, will not be forgiven men. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. The power of the Holy Spirit in salvation, even through Jesus, is the same power that saves today. Without that, there is only the bleakness of divine judgment. We end here the vindication of the offended one. My flesh and yours may like me to end. Wait till next week just flitted through my brain. But I shall not. See, someone has been offended when a lowly man rejects the Son of God. Someone has been offended when someone rejects the Spirit of God. And someone has been offended when someone rejects the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that person is God. We are living in a world where our defenses need to go back to defending God and His truth and not all these other social issues. I'm taking two minutes off the clock. You cannot defend abortion. 
and the life rights without God and creation. You cannot defend marriage, the roles of a man and a woman alone as being man and woman and nothing else apart from God being offended that you deny his creation. You cannot defend, you name your social issue, the poverty of man, the need to have peace on earth without God. So if Christian, if you're reasoning with the reasoning of most conservatives today that doesn't have God in the middle of it, being offended by what you're doing, and you don't confront the poor people stuck in this sin with their offense before God, you've done him a disservice. You might be facilitating them in being this kind of a person, one who is then defending, or excuse me, offending the Holy One of Israel. And so point C, the vindication of the offended, back on the clock. God's vindication by his vengeance, verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. As I say that this morning, I wonder, do you know him? Do we know him? Those who might hear this in some other means, do you know that God is God of love and a God of vengeance? He said so. For we know him. Part of my faith in God is, yes, God is a merciful and loving God. And part of my faith is based on this truth that God is a judgmental God and a vengeful God. And that scares me. People say, oh, no, you can't preach it that way, pastor. You're a pastor. There's no fear of God in you. Yes, there is. I know me. And I fear God. I am not God. Even Paul said, I cannot judge myself. We always use a fake standard. This is a declaration of the person of God. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. God will be vindicated by his vengeance. Vindication means this. The fact of proving that someone is not guilty or is free from blame after other people have blamed them. Isn't that what happens in the world? How can God judge me? That's not fair. How can he send me there? It was Adam that fell. I didn't fall. I wouldn't have done that. That's his fault, not my fault. How come I'm in trouble for all of his stuff? Well, if he was a merciful God, if he is a loving God, why didn't he just save everybody? Well, he died on behalf of everyone. But he didn't save everyone. Because some have heard and reject. And so they get his vengeance. God has held out the olive branch to sinful man. And man has said, we want no peace with you. We like being your enemy. And then we wonder, when we have attacked his shores and tried to destroy his fleet and knocked down his towers and broken apart his churches, that God is going to come back and say, ah, I'll let that go then you don't know God. And you've skipped a verse. Vengeance is mine. He will be vindicated as being rightly and justly punishing with his own vengeance. See, only God can operate vengeance righteously. When we do our vengeance, if you'll forgive me for saying this in church, it's John Wick time. If you don't know that movie, don't watch it. The vengeance of man takes and goes too far every time. That's why God told us, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You're not good at repaying. You always pay back too much. Can I have an amen? You've all done it. <gasps> Did you just accuse us in church? Yes. How do I know this? I read my Bible. We've all done it paid back more than what we got. 
here. It is appropriate to the sin. So God is vindicated by his vengeance. And then God's vindication via his retribution. Notice, I will repay, says the Lord. It's payback. See, under Christ and believing in him, you don't get what you deserve. But if you don't choose that option, you get what you deserve. You get paid back for trampling the Son of God under your feet. Song of Moses. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops upon the tender herb, as a shower on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Moses sings on, but then he sings this in verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining, bond or free, then he will say, Where are their gods, little g? The rock in which they sought refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. See now that I am he. There is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. This is a warning. To all of you who know the truth, to not become a willful sinner, to not reject, but to hold fast your confession of hope without wavering. So you have a choice. As two other men had a choice in the most unlikely setting, a cross in the center or a criminal supposed was hanging with a sign over his head, King of the Jews. One man flanked him on the right and one on the left. Thieves rightly accused. Both be began by cursing the one in the middle, the one called Jesus. The one who some said was the Messiah of Israel. Suddenly one man changed. And he looked to Jesus. He said, remember me. Remember me. You get to your kingdom. 
Jesus said to him, Today you shall be with me in paradise. And the other went to hell. For hours he hung on the cross. He heard the words of Jesus and he rejected them. He rejected even the voice of his fellow thief and he went to hell. Let's pray. What can we say to this, O Lord God? But protect us from unbelief. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. May our confession grow stronger as we follow you, that our hope is in you, Lord Jesus, alone apart from any of our own workings. We trust in you. And so I ask you all to pray with me this morning the words of the Lord's Prayer. Please join me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever.